we had people that we couldn't get back up. People were out for hours, you know. Um, but the point was that when they came to, God done a work. Mm. And that's, the te- that's how you test it. It, there's a, it wasn't just a religious experience, which might be phony or even demonic. But if the fruit of it is of God, then obviously God was doing something. Welcome, everybody, to the Good Theology podcast brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Dwell Bible. Did you know that the average adult, listen to this, this is convicting. Did you know that the average adult checks their device 261 times over the course of one day? That's a lot of FaceTime with the phone. So when it comes to our perspective as Christians, for better or worse, oftentimes the front line of ministry uh, is in people's hands on their phone. Our sponsor, Dwell Bible, has built a church platform that equips pastors to help your congregation stay anchored in God's word with Dwell's popular audio Bible experiences. So if you're a pastor wondering if Dwell is the right discipleship tool for you, uh, Dwell would like to gift you a free free, if it's free, it's me, one-year individual subscription to try it out for yourself. All you have to do is text the word GOOD to 39383, and you can tell the team from there where to send that account, and you can claim your free one-year gift subscription. Again, that's GOOD to 39383. I like it. It's a good mission, trying to replace our Instagram time with some more Bible time. And if you haven't ever tried listening to the scriptures, I do encourage you to do it. It is uh, very enriching. I'm here with my co-host today, David Campbell. David, so good to be with you once again. How are you today? Uh, I'm not too bad, thank you. Wonderful. Um, Well, thanks everybody for listening. We so appreciate it. And if you haven't already, we'd love for you to head over to our YouTube channel. Just look up Good Theology and subscribe to our account there. We'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. That does just uh, a huge favor to us. Even if you're not a YouTube person, it's really helpful for us in continuing to spread the word about our podcast, which we so love doing, and we get so much positive feedback from all of you, our growing community. Today, we've got a handful of things that we're going to talk about. Next week, I'm excited, we are going to begin a discussion as well on a new book all about the atonement. As we're looking towards Easter, we want to help all of you think about the atonement. Um, and this book, I've already read it, so I'll be reading it again for the second time with David. And it's got a lot of uh, fascinating connections from the atonement that I think uh, will make for some great discussion. Today, I want to uh, begin by uh, answering a question that came in uh, through our Instagram. And the question was this, what are the biblical grounds for revival? And what can we do to facilitate God bringing revival about? My guess is that this question is perhaps stemming from what many of you know is going on at Asbury uh, University uh, in uh, Kentucky. A friend of mine is a seminary student at the seminary at Asbury as well. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I think it was uh, last week at the time of this recording, on a Wednesday, uh, they had their usual Wednesday morning chapel. Uh, It's a I think like a prayer service, a worship service. And at the end of the chapel, uh, the worship team or the choir continued to sing. Most of the students left. A few of them hung back. And those students just never left. I guess there was such a sense of the presence of God in the place that they just stayed. And then the word spread that students were still in there. And before you knew it, hundreds of students had regathered in the chapel. And since last Wednesday... There have been hundreds of people in the chapel not ceasing to worship, pray, uh, as far as I can tell in what I've been reading and the pictures I've been seeing as well, uh, confession, repentance of sin, praying for one another, sharing uh, out of God's word, reading of scripture. It's truly amazing. I know that the size of the crowd kind of ebbs and flows a little bit, but at its high points, there are hundreds and hundreds of people that are in that chapel hall, worshiping God, praying for one another, and confessing sins. It looks really beautiful. Everybody, it seems on my Instagram, you know, in terms of Christian leaders, is talking about it. 
Um, and a lot of people are calling it a revival, which I guess Asbury has had two or three uh, instances like this in their history um, over the last, I don't know, several decades or so. So, David, let's talk about this a bit because I look at it and I go, seems really special, seems like something that we should pray for God to do in our own places, our own contexts. Um, is revival the right word? I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know if that's the appropriate word or not. So maybe we should start there. What, biblically speaking, what is a revival? Is revival even a word that the New Testament uses? I remember uh, researching this a little bit 30 years ago when the um, there was the outbreak in the Holy Spirit of the Toronto Airport Church. And uh, we were all discussing these same questions. What is revival? And my recollection from, you know, my recollection was our concept of revival, quote unquote, as being, um, you know, a moving of God, uh, which changes people's hearts and particularly um, brings people into the kingdom. Uh, that isn't really uh, a thing in the Bible, um, but there are seasons of refreshing mm -hmm. uh, and definitely times when it, in the Bible when, you know, God was moving more than at other times. Um, so there are times of spiritual refreshing. There are times of the moving of God among his people, both in the Bible and in church history. Uh, and, I think that those times take different forms. Um, so uh, what we saw in Toronto, for instance, was, um, I mean, what, what I look for is something that is kind of unexpected and spontaneous to begin with. So, Which uh, this gets, thing at Asbury is, for sure. Right. And it's, so if you get something that's unexpected and spontaneous, and is unusual in some in some way. So it's not something you would have predicted. Um, it seems to have broken out suddenly, and um, things. It's characterized by at least something that you would not expect to be happening, other than supernatural. If there was a supernatural moving of the spirit, so by those standards, something is obviously happening mm -hmm. because it's not normal for a church to have uh, or a college to have a prayer meeting which without any planning simply carries on day and night for a week let's say mm -hmm. so uh you know what the what the um duration of it will be is is another matter and it's complicated a little bit by, I think, all the social media we have today. Uh, back 30 years ago, uh, the Holy Spirit broke out at Toronto Airport Church, and it was sudden, it was unexpected, and it was uh, unusual. Uh, so it met those criteria. And, uh, I mean, it, it just started one night, and the only way that they knew how to respond. It was Sunday night. The only way they know, knew how to respond was by um, opening up a meeting the next night. And uh, they had the sense to simply be open to the Spirit and say, well, well, we'll keep on going. We don't really know what's happening, but it obviously w it would be wrong to just shut it down. So it's a choice made, um, and uh, it took uh, a while for news of what was happening to kind of percolate right. because there wasn't social media, and some of us began hearing, you know, from people who had been in the meetings, and people were phoning people, and you know, this sort of thing, and and uh, gradually over a period of two or three months, uh, that news percolated overseas and people started 
flying in. Um, and, and, uh, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that it could have just shut down. Um, uh, but it didn't. Um, whereas what we're looking at now in the social media age is, uh, something happens and all of a sudden everybody in the country knows about it. Right. In hours, I'm exaggerating, you know, yep. and there is a percentage of people who absolutely love to be in on stuff like this and will pack their bags and drive or fly in. And so you can get numbers of people. It isn't re that isn't really a sign that God is doing anything. It's just a, it's just people who want to be part of something like this, you know. Maybe for, for good reasons or bad reasons. Maybe maybe yeah. for good, yeah, for whatever reason. Um, so the fact that meetings are going on day and night and you've got a few hundred people there doesn't mean today what it meant even 30 years ago. Uh, because 30 years ago, something supernatural was happening. The pool of people was very small. It was like, friends phoning friends and saying, you know, something unusual, which is how I heard. My sister-in-law said, you know, so-and-so has a friend, of, a mutual friend of, 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 of theirs and ours. Um, you know, they, they were at uh, John Arnett's church uh, the other night. And for those of you who are listening, John Arnett was the pastor of uh, Toronto uh, Church. Airport, Airport, Airport Church. Yeah. And, uh, and a personal friend of mine. Uh, and, uh, um, and so, you know, she said, my sister-in-law said, well, so-and-so, a lady that we knew, you know, had this manifestation of the Spirit. She, she had to be carried out of the meeting. Such was the power of the Holy Spirit upon her. And because I, I knew that, you know, I believed the vineyard was a credible movement, John was a credible leader, I thought, well, this is unusual. I better check it out. And, uh, you know, that even that wasn't for two or three weeks or whatever. Um, and when I did, uh, I had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit myself. And by the way, uh, all the heresy hunters on the Internet that characterize that move of God as being weird, wacky, and people barking like dogs is a bunch of baloney. Uh, I mean, we were involved in it up to our eyeballs for a considerable period of time. Um, several years, and never saw that. Um, and you know, I I don't want to get into that, but I'm just I'm just giving a defense of that. Now, uh, you know, was that revival? Well, by the standard sense of revival, which is like the Great Awakening, uh, or and, and I mention this because we have connection with the Hebrides, the Hebrides revival. Um, where uh, substantial numbers of people uh, came to Christ, um, the Toronto Airport move was more a refreshing right. of saints and particularly of, of of pastors who were. It was a miraculous. It was a miraculous work. Hundreds and hundreds of pastors, including some very well known people, came who were absolutely at the end of their tether, burned out, and had it and. You know, had these miraculous encounters with God uh, in in meetings, which completely renewed, recharged, and sent them back out into ministry. And it, and right. Bill Johnson and Bethel will be one example. Roland and Heidi Baker of Iris Ministries be another example. But they were only prominent examples. There were hundreds, including people that I knew, were including myself, who were at their wits' end, and the Holy Spirit touched us. And he gave us strength. It wasn't just a momentary experience. It was something that renewed or recharged and sent people back out into fruitful ministry. So by that standard, it was a definite reviving of the people of God. But it wasn't a revival in the sense of um, mass salvation, people coming to Christ. Right. And maybe that's a good delineation that there can be revival in the sense that it's refreshing, which is the literal, you know, definition of revival. It's to to regain, yeah, giving new life. And so, uh, there can be revival amongst Christians, and it seems to be that's the the probably the best description for what's happening at Asbury right now. 
And there's also revival uh, that leads to mass conversion. Um, I believe that we should pray for both, honestly, uh, because like you say, so many Christians, um, they get weary, they get tired. And as much as our own personal relationship with the Lord is enough to daily revive us, uh, it also is helpful for a mass time of refreshing to come upon the church in places. I pray for that for our church. Do you remember at Toronto on that Sunday night, what was the activity that made uh, John Arnott go, oh, God is doing something special. We better do this again tomorrow night. Like what happened in that service? Well, I because they began to pray for people and they were powerfully affected by the Holy Spirit. So there's like a visible manifestation. People were encountering God's power. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm not just talking about, you know, people who, you, you know, I mean, in charismatic circles, you falling down or you can have a lot of fakery, but this was the real thing. And we had, we had people that we couldn't get back up. People were out for hours, you know. Um, but the point was that when they came to, God had done a work. Mm. And that's the te- that's how you test it. It, there's a, it wasn't just a religious experience, which might be phony or even demonic. But if the fruit of it is of God, then obviously God was doing something, you know. And uh, so uh, it, now, you know, ba- back, we had the privilege. I mean, twice I had, and Elena and I once, um, a visiting the Outer Hebrides. What is the Hebrides? I'm not familiar with that. Well, it, you should be. Uh, Educate the, outer, the Outer Hebrides, the Hebridean revival, was the last revival to hit the United Kingdom. And it took place between 1948 and 1952. Uh, and it was led by a man called Duncan Campbell, which is a good name to have. <laughs> but uh, the, what, what happened was that uh, people were had committed and covenant before God to um, uh, pray and not leave the church building, the church building they were in, until they felt that God had had done something. They were, and the Hebrides had a history of revivals every, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years or something. So there were always people. Is the Hebrides is that a place or was that a the Outer Hebrides is is um, a, a series of islands off the north Got it. west coast of Scotland, and uh, and the next stop is Newfoundland in 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 Eastern Canada, which looks quite similar actually. Um, Did the Torrance family have anything to do with that at all? Which family? The Torrance family. I've been uh, going down this rabbit hole of the Torrance family. Yeah, like the Scottish not, not that I know of, but I, I can't say for sure. But they were in Edinburgh in the university, the Torrances. So okay. but in the the Hebrides is not uh English is not the native language. Gaelic is the native language, it's Celtic language. And uh and it's all Presbyterian and very strict Presbyterian or it was. Uh and, and that's so, reformed, right? Very reformed. They only sang the psalms. They sang the psalms in, in Gaelic. Wow. And and so, uh, you know, the minister dressed black, head to toe. Um, so it was a very, you know, it was it was the total opposite of anything that you would classify as Pentecostal. But when the, the revival started, and it started in the middle of the night with these people praying about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, um, non-Christian people began waking up across the island with visions of hell and the lake of fire wow. and, and began to cry out to God. And uh, the ministers uh, would, would, <laughs> would, the ministers would leave people in this state. Like they wouldn't just go and visit them. They would leave them for a couple days until they really felt sure they were under conviction of sin, and then they would go and lead them to Christ. And in one of the churches that I spoke in, uh, the, the uh, older couple who had lived through the revival um, took took me aside and said, "In the revival, 
and the the churches were all full uh the the unsaved were coming in and there had been a a lot of alcoholism and 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 stuff people's eyes ruined and all these people were coming in and they said in the service people would go into a coma that's how they expressed it and the elders would come and lay them in rows outside which in the outer hebrides is cold and wet and then they said very reverently when they came to they were converted see that was revival and extraordinary things manifestations happen one chapel um i was in they had closed the doors and uh as they were walking away the chapel filled with light another church service the minister the, the a wind began blowing and everyone in everyone's papers and so on blowing around the minister ordered all the windows to be shut and the wind didn't stop things like this were happening and these were all Presbyterians that had absolutely no theology of Pentecostalism or gifts of the Spirit or anything like that, but they were supernatural manifestations. And and I knew of a a woman who was so uh, hated God and hated uh, what God was doing so much that she left the Hebrides. She went to Glasgow as a nurse, and then she lost her job and had to come home. But every day she would walk all around the village to stay away from the church. One day she was in a hurry and she forgot where she was going. And as she walked past the church, just the empty church building, she came under the power of God and was struck to the ground and she was saved. And, uh, you know, when God begins to move sovereignly, supernatural things happen. And uh, not just in Pentecostal circles either. So that was revival. And uh, there's, you know, books been written about it and so on. Uh, interestingly, it ended. At, you, you know, they told me that you could go to a certain place and you could almost draw a line where the revival stopped. It went so far geographically. But, you know, all those years later, 30 years later, we were there. And I've never felt, I've never in my life been in a place where I felt the presence of God. I was on the Hebrides. It was quite extraordinary. It was fascinating that she walked by the church and and came under the power of the Holy Spirit. To me, that's really encouraging. I, you know, not that God can't move anywhere, but it just speaks to the power of place. And when we consecrate ourselves and consecrate a place as holy unto the Lord, then God can use that in mighty ways. I mean, she walked by an empty church building and got saved. Yeah, <laughs> extraordinary. So, you know, the... You know, you can't explain it. So I, I, I just I hope and trust that, um, you know, at Asbury, a friend of mine is te- teaches in the seminary there, Ben Weatherington. Uh, and I, and Dr. Keener's there as well, I believe. Sorry? Dr. Keener as well. Yep, he's there. Uh, and I, and I, I, I trust and hope, would hope and pray that, you know, God does a genuine move. If I were in the college authorities, I might be inclined to barricade the, the driveway to allow charismatic thrill seekers to barricade them out. You know, I read a report earlier today where somebody with flags showed up and they tried to walk around the hall with waving the flags and they were kindly asked to leave. Yeah, uh, well, they, part, not that I have anything. Well, well, let me actually, let me rephrase that. I don't like people, people waving flags at my church. <laughs> and want to be respectful and, and, yeah. of, and you know, you, you, you should be in awe of what God is doing. Um, so I, I think we should pray that, uh, it spreads mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it's, if it, if it's just something for localized, then that's wonderful for those right. people. But, yeah. um, the impact of what started in Toronto spread around the world. And yeah. I mean, we prayed, you know, there, there were 747s in those days were still running. There were 747 planes full of Koreans flying in from Seoul, Malu had big churches and so on. So, I mean, it, it, it spread around the world and had a massive impact to this day, you know, in the lives of people. Who, I, I don't think we'd have Bethel music, if it, for instance, if it wasn't for mm-hmm. what it had. You see, they had a prophetic word 18 months before from a prophet, friend of mine lives in San Diego, who went to the church and said, uh, Niagara Falls is going to be poured out on the city of Toronto in 18 months. Prepare. And so, um, oh, we just lost your lights. 
the electronic. I'll have to move around because the motion sensor is so bad. <laughs> there we go. I wave my hands and the glory comes down. <laughs> anyway, uh, and so John and his wife Carol, um, they uh, received this word and they turned their entire church into a ministry team. They spent a year. They 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 spent every morning in prayer in their house and didn't take appointments. And they turned tur turned the whole church, which is only two or three hundred people, into a ministry team because they were building an ark, you know, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, almost exactly eighteen months to the day later was when this all happened, and they were ready to go. They had people that understood how to pray for people, which in the Vineyard Movement, of course, John Wimber had taught people how to do that. So, uh, I'm I'm the you know I think it's great, you know, but any Anything that's a genuine move of God will have long-lasting effects. Mm -hmm. If it's just a little bit of excitement, that's that's fine. But if it's truly a visitation of the Holy Spirit, truly a move of God, then it will be sustained, uh, it will spread, and it will have measurable effects in the life of, lives of people, whether it refreshes the saints or whether it brings new people into the kingdom or does both. Yeah, my suspicion is that it is a genuine move of God. I know we might listen to something like a week and go, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But the reality is that a lot, a lot of people get to the end of an hour and a half church service and and they're, you know, they're ready to go. Um, so my suspicion is that it's real. I, I have heard reports that it's starting to spread to other nearby universities as well. Well, here's one because universities are the places that need it the most. Well, that's exactly right. And so I wonder what God is up to. Here's one final question that we can talk through on, on this topic, and then we can move on. I think a lot of times Christians maybe look at something that's happening in another place and feel that now it's up to them to try to, in some way, manufacture that same kind of move where they are. You know, I have people come up and talk to me every now and then at church, say, you know, we really, we want a move of God and um, what do we have to do to, to make it happen? And my response is always, our job is to be faithful. It's to, to, to consecrate ourselves to God, to, um, to seek his kingdom, to do all of the things that we are instructed to do, to, to live by faith. And ultimately, God's moving is up to him. We can't force God's hand to do something unexpected and unusual. We can pray and believe, and we can do the ordinary, which still produces wonderful kingdom results. But if we want to see the extraordinary, then we need to keep walking by faith and uh, day by day being faithful to him in all of our ordinary sacrificial ways. And then God is the one who does the, the unexpected. Uh, what would you say to that? What kind of encouraging word would you give to somebody who wants to see replicated where they are, whether it be something at Asbury or another revival? Well, I, I mean, it, you know, no matter how Arminian you are, you can't, no, I don't think no one would claim that you can manufacture a revival. It, it's, it's a sovereign visitation of God. And, you know, I, I don't, I have no, I, I'm sure that in, there is some correlation with sustained prayer, just as there was in, mm. uh, for instance, in the life of John and Carol Arnett prior to, you know, and probably others who were with them praying, or the he Hebrides revival, the people who were praying. Um, but, you know, it can, it, it can break out. A move of God can break out where nobody's praying. Mm. You know, it, it just, God is sovereign. And, all, I, I think we have to, uh, you know, the book of Revelation talks about prayers going to a bowl and the bowl gets tipped over at some point and God starts to move. But whether our prayer is the first prayer into the bowl or the last, beautiful, it, it, we really don't know, but it it's a contribution. And I think that much as we all want to see uh, and experience something like this ourselves immediately, um, we may be making a contribution to it through praying. We might not ever live to see it. Um, who knows? But I, I, I mean, we just seek the face of God for his presence and 
we have to allow God God to do the rest. Otherwise, otherwise we become fixated on, you know, uh, it, it becomes experiential. I guess what I'm trying to say that, um, and I and you know, like it, all of us have been in meetings or in places that were special, Re- regularly even, and and you can't. My sitting here thinking of a great meeting I was in last year or 30 years or 40 years ago is is not productive uh, because it makes me, it's nostalgic, you know, and um, it, it may make me uh, create a blueprint that I think God has to move the same way he did the last time. Right. But really, I just can't do that. I, 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 I long to see God moved by his spirit and to be in the midst of real life, um, uh, I I do, and and I think one thing, you know, if you were born again in 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 a, a time of spiritual awakening, which I was, it was the the end of the Jesus movement. There were millions of people came to Christ. The last real time spiritual awakening on the North American continent, going back fifty years now. And I think if you live through that, there's something in you that wrecks you for anything less. You always want it, just like our friends in the Hebrides. They, 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 they prayed for revival. That's what they looked for, you know, because they'd experienced it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but we just have to be prepared to serve God in the here and now, with and with whatever God does. And uh, yeah, so. The two, the two are not mutually exclusive from one another. They go hand in hand. And I think we should all hope that this comes to something wonderful. That would be great. I, I certainly, personally, right now, I'm praying for revival to sweep Southern California. And I, I just want to participate in it. I want our church to participate in it. I want to be a part of a great move of God. I can remember God speaking to me as a teenager and, and him showing me pictures of things that uh, that I could participate in. And I just refused to settle for anything less than going after the fullness of what I felt like God has shown me. Whether or not I get to experience it or, or, or witness it is not really the point. The point is that I live a life of pursuit and I don't want to settle for anything less. That's the kind of life that I want to live. That's the, the life as a, a pastor that I want to help my congregation live as well. And even in the pursuit, there is such joy and there's such power, and we get to see miracles along the way. And as you said, we get to experience truly wonderful, incomparable meetings and gatherings that you just can't find uh, in any other sphere of life as you come together as the church. And so the journey is great. We have, we have a saying in our church, there is joy in the journey. And it's, it's not all about the, the destination or, or the momentous occasions. Those are wonderful, and I pray God brings about that revival in Southern California and lots of other places as well but i love the journey as well um and i think god honors that and the journey is faith faith is what we're called to live by and faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen so even when we don't see the ultimate outcome of our promise we still have the evidence of faith in the here and the now let's talk about faith david you're somewhat of a faith expert, I would say, and and you, I would say that yeah, you're a you're uh, an anomaly, you know, as as somebody who is uh, reformed, um, and such a you know a great Bible scholar. You also have a a very strong conviction about living by faith, and that being more than much more than some cerebral experience or exercise. Let's help people today understand faith more accurately and and more deeply and out of that discussion my hope is that we can help people to to live by faith more completely how would you define faith well uh, ultimately biblically uh faith is personal trust in jesus christ uh the greek word um conveys the idea of personal trust um uh, so faith is includes things that you believe. There's content to it, but faith is not uh, uh, just believing a set of doctrines. 
Uh, and faith isn't just doing outrageous things for the sake of doing outrageous things. Faith is, above all, personal trust in Christ. Uh, that's the foundation. That's what, in my opinion, differentiates Christianity or certainly Judeo-Christianity from any other religion, that it's based on personal relationship with God uh, rather than um, beliefs about God. Uh, and so we have a relationship with God, and that relationship is characterized by the word faith. So out of that, um, uh, out of that comes um, practical expressions of our trust in Christ, which include um, the fact that we believe certain things uh, at our cost. Uh, it includes the fact that we're willing to do things that we feel Christ is calling us to do out of our personal relationship, which may be very costly and very risky. That's part of faith. It includes um, a it, because faith is rooted in personal trust in the Son of God, faith takes us into the supernatural realm. And so it causes us to believe that faith is, you quoted Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So the word substance means a foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Christ is, this, uh, um, is described as the image of the substance of God. Mm -hmm. uh, so earlier in Hebrews, early in, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, and so... Uh, Faith brings the substance, which is the, the reality of who God is, into, it takes it out of the realm of hope and brings it into the realm of experience. Um, so, uh, you know, we God uses us to um, access a supernatural realm where God can use us to do things, such as praying for someone and healing the sick, for instance, that we can never otherwise do. I mean, uh, as as the incarnate Christ makes the the triune God physically known, He is the substance. So also our faith makes spiritual power felt and experienced in a given moment in time. It is the substance. Jesus Christ brings the substance, the eternal reality and of who God is into physical format. That's what he did in the incarnation. And because we are part of the body of Christ, um, we also can bring the substance of who God is in the supernatural realm mm -hmm. into physical reality. See, something that I've been struck by on that, uh, on that topic lately is and it connects to a lot of the previous conversations we've been having on the incarnation and how all of God's gifts to us are given in the person of Jesus Christ. I think that that has to include our, our faith as well, and the growing strength of our faith is in Jesus Christ, in the sense that his vicarious life is what is given to us when we're joined to him by faith through the Holy Spirit. And one of the elements to the vicarious life of Christ was the faith that he exercised while he walked this earth. I think about the faith of Christ, and it was so great in the sense that Christ had faith that the Father would raise him from the dead so that he could die confidently, knowing that even on that dark Saturday, he would still see the light of day again on Sunday. I mean, when you think about that level of faith, that is truly remarkable that you can go to the cross and die knowing that you will you know, your physical brain and body will be dead for a couple of days and you're trusting that your Father in heaven is going to resurrect you. That's a, an incredible amount of faith. I wonder as well if even now as our high priest who intercedes for us, that in his interceding, Christ still exercises his faith, that in his petitioning, his intercession on behalf of the church, there's a faith there that he is utilizing as he makes those requests known to the Father. And if that, by participating in him, if his faith 
is the faith upon which we draw so that we can walk by faith. That's the best way I can make sense of it. Otherwise, you have to arrive at some kind of conclusion that faith is something that you concoct within your own spirit. And I think that that's nothing more than wishful thinking. I think true faith is the faith of the Son that is given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you think yeah. of all that? And, and well, one important thing to remember is the Greek word pistis, the word for faith, is also the word for faithfulness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so uh, part, part of our expression of faith is that we are faithful. Mm -hmm. So Christ has faith in the sense that he's faithful. He obviously doesn't have sense. He doesn't have sense now in the presence of eternity as the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he doesn't have faith. He doesn't require faith in the same way we, you know, in the same way it's spoken spoken of us. Um, but he still is faithful, and that's why he is still he ever liveth to intercede for us. Hebrews chapter seven twenty eight. So Christ is living now, and he is interceding for us. That's part of his faithfulness to us, his people, which is amazing to think about. And so God, the life of faith is the life of faithfulness to begin with. God, God will, will move with people who are faithful and, 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 and obedient. That's why it talks about the obedience of faith in Romans. It means that if you have faith, you can't say you have faith if it's not walked out in obedience to God. And, uh, but I, I think that, um, you know, the problem that we've had in in our modern context, our sort of contemporary context, the last several decades, in large portions of Christianity, is uh, it, it's the dis, we've been dealing with the dis, some of the distortions that have been spread by the Word of Faith movement. And I'm not I'm not trashing the Word of Faith movement, and in, I'm just saying, you know, they didn't get it all right. And one of the distortions was. Um, that people tend to think of faith as being my ability to believe something in my mind. For instance, um, we had a couple in our church many years ago, and they had a picture of a fancy automobile on their refrigerator. And I said, well, what's that doing there? Well, it's just a reminder of us that we're believing God that he's going to, you know, give that to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the circumstances of their life were not as faithful as they should be. And so really, they were under the thinking that if they just believed hard enough that God would be obligated to do it for them. And of course, that takes us right out of the realm of faith. Real faith is personal relationship with Jesus. And you don't treat God as, you know, faith is not like some kind of spiritual credit card that you tap and then get out of the machine or whatever, whatever you want. You know, that's that's not how it works. Faith is birthed out of a relationship with God where we discern the will of God for our life. And if God says, you know, I want you to give your possessions away or I want you to go to the other side of the world or I want you to do, you know, a small thing, but it it may be a difficult thing for us to do. Um, that's part of my will for you. Then my response is faith. Yes, Lord, I will obey and do it. But in the process of obeying and doing it, I may have numerous doubts in my mind. Um, you know, I may my emotions may be up and down like a yo-yo. Uh, that doesn't disqualify me because the root of faithfulness is obedience. If I go out and do do what God has called me to do, then God will meet me. His covenant, He He is He I, you know, His covenant guarantees that that God will meet me and I can't dictate the extent what that exactly will look like um, because my fallen human nature will always tend to ask for things that are positive for me and comforting and take me away from any trouble or whatever but I what I do know is that God will meet me if I obey him and provide what I need to do and I've always believed that God you know, God's will done God's way will never lack God's provision. I mm -hmm. never remember whether it was Hudson Taylor or William Carey said that, but whoever said it was was right. You know, that if 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 you obey God, his provision, whether that is financial provision, whether it is provision of health, whether it is provision of, 
you know, the agreement of family members or whatever it may be. The whole thing will come together if you obey God. And that's faith. Yeah, I, I think you say it exactly right. I think the simplest definition of faith is obedience. Um, it is, or another word for that is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God is what it means to have faith in God. And that faithfulness isn't, it's not the obedience of a slave. It's the obedience of a son or a daughter. It's based upon relationship with him where we know him and trust him. Uh, and, and in trusting him, we trust his character and his his ability, what, what he's capable of doing. Um, and Jesus is our forerunner in that. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author of it in the sense that he was the he is the ultimate faithful one, that where we were faithless, he remained faithful to the Father. Um, and by being joined to him, he, he sanctifies us. He develops his faithfulness in us. That's why faithfulness is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that helps us to obey. And, and Jesus is still being faithful to the Father, even to this day, as our high priest, like you said. He's faithfully fulfilling his role on our behalf. Um, and that faithfulness, again, it, it comes to us by his Holy Spirit as we submit to him and make ourselves dependent upon him. This is where I think the key is. And this is something that I've just started talking to our church about, is the Bible doesn't seem to have any problem with talking about degrees of faith, if you will, like great faith or little faith, which we best understand as uh, quality faith or weak faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great quote um, that I'll botch if I try to say exactly right, but the paraphrase is essentially that weak faith, It's pro the problem of weak faith is that it keeps returning to questions that have been answered. It, it keeps you going back to the, the same old, but what if, or what about um, it's, it's lacking in quality. And so I think where Christians get hung up is they pray the prayer that the disciples prayed. They said, Lord, increase our faith, increase our faith. And if I remember correctly, Jesus doesn't tell them how to increase their faith. He doesn't give them a formula for how they can go from a little to a lot. I think he just answers them. Well, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there and, and it'll move. And so I think where Christians get stuck is we think we need a greater size of faith or a greater quantity of faith. And we need to wait for that to be given to us before we can start to obey God. But what if, what if the increase in our faith going from little to great faith is actually in the obedience? That in obeying God, where we step out with the doubts, with the fears, with the concerns of how it's going to turn out, what if that actual exercise and practice is how our faith goes from poor quality to high quality? I think that that's right. And I began to think about what Peter said in First Peter, where he said that the, uh, the quality of your faith, which is more precious than gold, it's, it's tried by trial. It's perfected by trial. And so it's in perseverance. It's in endurance. It's in risk. It's in even suffering that our faith becomes greater. And that's why I think Jesus doesn't answer their prayer the way that they think when they say increase our faith. What he does is he tells them to put their faith to work. Because it's in working your faith, it's in actually obeying God and what he already told you to do, that your faith actually begins to grow. What do you think about all of that? That's where my head's been at. Well, I, I think, you know, keep on preaching. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Is I think that what you said, the approach that, that you've just put forward, um, is soundly based on the idea of faith as personal trust in Christ not intellectual belief or uh, emotional certainty. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be set free from the idea that faith is believing things in our head that are going to happen mm -hmm. or being on an emotional high, you know, uh, so that we're certain that things are going to happen. And if you think that's what faith is, that's torture. Because it, you're, it, you know in your head that you always have doubt. There's always the presence of doubt. And so if you think that it's the journey of eliminating every shred of doubt, you're going to condemn yourself. Oh, exactly. And and it's a, it's a spiritualized version of positive thinking in my Exactly. Opinion. It's the secret. It's putting things out into the universe. It's manifesting. And it's manipulating God, you know, because it's saying, well, if I, if I just believe that God is going to give this, uh, you know, uh, 
700 series BMW or whatever to me, then, then God has to do it because I believe it. And right. it's a deception. And of course it doesn't work because God won't be, be manipulated. Then people walk away and they blame God, but they shouldn't blame God for their own stupidity. And when you put that in the context of something more, you know, costly or personal, if somebody is sick and they're not getting healed, then they start to think, well, I, I have too many doubts and God's not healing me and that's a punishment. But actually, even in the Gospels, you look at instances where Jesus would say, stretch out your hand or go show yourself to the priest and they were healed in their going. So even in those instances, it's not the process of eliminating all their doubt. It was obeying the word Faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, obeying the word, that was the exercise of their faith, and that's where God did the miracle. Yeah, I was just preaching. I've been preaching here in Centerville, Michigan the last several weeks, and uh, and I, I was preaching on the desperate father that brings the demon-possessed son to Jesus. Jesus is up the mountain. The disciples can't do anything, and the whole thing unfolds. And, um, and, and, and then... Uh, the man says to Jesus, if you can do anything. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And then the man gives out <clears throat> what to me is the most, just about the most encouraging statement in the entire Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. Because, hey, I can relate to that. You know, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus, uh, Jesus regarded that man as having genuine faith because he answered his prayer. Um, and uh, I think that that drives a truck through the idea that faith is mentally believing certain things, you know, like positive thinking, or even being on an emotional high and being convinced God's going to do something because that man was just in a place of desperation. Uh, but... But he knew where to go to. He went to Jesus for help. That's the personal trust, the personal relationship. And uh, I don't know, you know, what happened when Peter got out of the boat. Um, I, I don't think that Peter was sitting in the boat thinking, well, I just believe without a shadow of a doubt that it, I'm going to walk in the water just like Jesus did. I think that he saw Jesus and something in his relationship with Jesus pulled him toward Jesus. And uh, the whole thing, of course, that that a story of Jesus walking on the water is um, very significant because the water in the Bible is the dwelling place of evil. And when the water is calmed and you can walk on it, it becomes the crystal sea of revelation where the enemy is banished. So when Jesus walked in the water in Galilee, he was providing a prophetic sign of the destruction of the work of Satan. And Peter, whether he knew it or not, was being invited into that, um, that mission of Jesus to destroy the work of the enemy. So we also can walk in the water. Exactly. It isn't, isn't just that you're supposed to go out to the nearest body of water mm -hmm. and, and try walking on it. It's, it's something significant in the spiritual realm was happening. But I think Peter was probably, I, I think he was just, I don't, you know, who knows what happened that that enabled him to get, to get out of the boat. But almost as soon as he got out of it, he began to sink, took his eyes off the Lord. Well, this is the yeah. difference, I think, between weak faith and great faith. So it, Jesus, Jesus saw his heart, right, and caught it. And that's an encouragement, too, because... We may reach out to Jesus, but at the same time, um, we we may be assailed by doubts, and we may be, you know, have all sorts of feelings going on. We may think, I'm praying, but I don't have any assurance in my heart that God's even going to answer my prayer. But if I, if you're reaching out, that's the important thing. It's the trust. It's the reaching out to Jesus, not what you're thinking at the time. And Jesus reached out and caught Peter and, and enabled him to walk with him in that journey. And when I fail and you fail, and, and but our heart is right, you know, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to do what you're calling me to do in my life. I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know if you're going to provide or not, but I'm willing to get out of the boat and have a go, you know? 
uh, then God God meets you, and that's where things in the supernatural really begin to happen. And that's where so few people are actually willing to go. And I think this is the this is the difference between weak faith and great faith is that great faith wants to partner, like you said, it just like Jesus walking on the water and calling Peter to come out is a, a picture of, of us partnering with him in his mission in the overcoming of evil and the establishment of his kingdom. Great faith wants to partner, whereas weak faith, I think, settles for basics, you know, whatever God wants to provide. Well, I think, so, well, I think weak faith is faith that wants the result but isn't willing to pay the price. Well, I think that's true, but a lot of times, uh, yeah, well, yes, that's exactly right. And in not wanting to pay the price, I think uh, they end up resigning themselves over to a life of just worrying about things that they're not supposed to worry about instead of trusting God and partnering with him. So I've been on this little journey, this study in, in Matthew, and in, Ma in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses this phrase, O you of little faith, several times, I think five and those five instances are in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about worrying about clothing. The other time is when Jesus comes walking, uh, so, sorry, when Jesus is sleeping in the boat in the middle of the storm on Galilee and the disciples are freaking out saying, don't you know we're going to perish? He says, oh, you have little faith. And then he stills the storm. The third time is when uh, the disciples are worried about bread uh, after Jesus has fed the five and the 4,000. He says, you have little faith. The fourth time is when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter comes out and then he begins to sink. And he says, why did you doubt? Are you of little faith? And the fifth time is, uh, well, it's, it's the story that you referenced before when Jesus comes and casts the demon out of the boy. And the disciples later ask Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? He says, because of your little faith. And what's interesting to me about that is that in those first three examples, the providing of clothing, the stilling of storms, and the giving of bread, Evidently, little faith is fine for that experience. Even though you have little faith, Jesus still provides your clothing. I mean, after all, he makes the sunrise on the just and the unjust alike. Even though you have little faith, Jesus will still ultimately still your storm. It will not last forever. Even though you have little faith, Jesus will still provide you with your bread. There's a, there's a level of faith or a degree of faith that we might consider on the weaker side where you, you will experience God's faithfulness, his provision. But there's another degree of faith that looks like partnership, that's walking on water and that's casting out demons and that's living an otherwise supernatural life, where actually little faith is not enough. Jesus says the reason you sank is because of your little faith. Jesus says the reason you couldn't cast out the demon is because of your little faith. And so we have to be eager to go from little faith to great faith. And that's a journey that I think every Christian must be intent on making except the way you make the journey isn't in asking God to, to help you think your way there to be more positive. The journey is in obedience. The journey is in hearing Jesus' call and stepping out onto the water. And even in the midst of the waves crashing and the wind blowing, you persevere and you keep your eyes on him and therefore you keep walking. Yeah, the solution to the disciples' little faith, or is the Greek, the Greek word for little can also mean weak or right. poor quality. Um, the solution, uh, was prayer and fasting. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. The solution for Peter in his weak faith was to get his eyes back on the, the Lord. So all those things to me speak of relationship with Jesus, which is the essence of faith, where we yeah. started this discussion. Yeah. That as long as I keep my relationship with the Lord strong, um, then he'll look after all those things. It's not down to how much I can believe in my mind that, you know, certain things are going to happen. It's just the quality of my relationship with the Lord. And uh, would you learn more about as you trust him? You do. And sometimes, uh, you know, I so I was thinking, um, I was thinking, uh, a, a young man that I mentor uh, has seen uh, at least four miracles of healing in his church in Ontario the last uh, several weeks. And uh, 
And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you had had a, a miracle of healing in, in C3LA as well. We've had a and, two and uh, two or three in the last month. So a, a week ago Sunday, uh, at the end of the service, um, a chiropractor came up uh, to me, one of the elders, after I finished speaking on the help, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. And uh, he said, you know, my knee is bad. And, uh, and uh, of course, my first comment wasn't very pastoral. It was physician heal thyself. But anyway, I had to <laughs> well, then he had to apologize. So we prayed. And the Holy Spirit came upon him in a visible way. And uh, later that day, he, he went home and he went running. He hadn't run wow. for months. And so I said, well, you got to stand up and give your testimony. Because I think that's really important. Yeah. The next Sunday. So he did. It was quite powerful. And then I thought, well, you know, the Lord is doing something. I'd heard of what had happened with you, what had happened with my friend David in, in Ontario, in London, Ontario, and, um, and, and what I'd seen happen here. And I thought, well, you know, there's a consistency in this, and I'm still speaking on prayer. The second week I was speaking on the widow of Luke 18. So I said, look, uh, when I finish speaking, anyone, uh, you know, who has any joint pain, because that's what God had healed, uh, and... Uh, and anyone who has athletic injuries, um, just come up at the end of the service. And my chiropractor friend, because if you've been healed, you have you often have a you know faith to pray for other people, or you should be praying for other people if you, God's blessed you. So I, I, him and the elders, let's have you know people will be up at the front. Well, anyway, we were stampeded, absolutely stampeded. I mean, the church was so full they had. A number of people in overflow area, but we were stampeded and prayed for people. And I had, you know, before the end of the day, another report, a lady who, one of the elders' wives who had not been able to walk any distance for months because of a, a leg problem, had gone out and walked for miles. And and uh, so I'm I'm believing that, you know, I, I, I'm preaching myself here, but I mean, I think that there comes a point when we need to just take a hold of God and cry out to him uh, for, you know, his invasion of the supernatural into, into our lives. And it isn't, one, it isn't just to meet people's needs, which is, I mean, Jesus wasn't the business meeting people's needs, but every miracle is a sign and a witness that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know, you can go back to your unbelieving friends and say, hey, this is what happened to me, you know? All the guys on the football team or something, and the one guy's got an injury, and, you know, he, he can't make any headway with it, and he goes to church and gets healed. Well, is that going to have an impact on the other members of the team? Sure it is. So I'm, I'm just in a bit of a, a thing at the moment where, and I've seen enough in my life, I know that you can't manufacture anything that you can huff and puff and rant and rave and jump up and down, and, you know, it won't be any more effective than the prophets of Baal and top of Mount Carmel. Um, but in our, there is a place where we need to cry out to God for him to meet people's needs and to glorify his name. And to have the uh, faith, to, uh, and to have the faith or the obedience to step out and seek him for those things. Absolutely. It's the crying out and the laying on of hands. It's the crying out and the sacrificial giving. It's the crying out and whatever that step of faith is. You know, you, you referenced Luke 18 a moment ago, uh, it, and I think in that chapter, Jesus makes that amazing statement. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's really... Uh, I don't think it's faithfulness, you know. Faithfulness, because... obedience obedience well he said he says it in uh in connection to the the parable of the persistent widow and so that persistence that perseverance um i can't remember if it's in luke's gospel or another gospel where in that parable jesus you know is he's he's contrasting the character of the judge versus the actual character of god who is much more willing to give um and and much more just Nevertheless, we're still to be persistent with him because we know him. 
because we trust his character. And I, I thought about that that statement in that same in connection to that same study I've been doing in Matthew. And a lot of those times when Jesus encounters uh, his disciples who are experiencing weak faith, um, it's it's him on the back of him coming down from a mountain. So when he comes down and he finds the disciples incapable of casting out the demon, he's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. When he uh, comes walking on the water to the disciples and Peter steps out of the boat and sinks because of his little faith, that's on the back of him coming down from the mountain of prayer, I believe after having fed the 5,000. And I thought to myself, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That'll be the last time he comes down from his mountain. And in the same way he came down from those mountains of transfiguration and the mountain of prayer, he's going to come down from his mountain from on high. And will he find little faith? Or will he find great faith? Will he find obedience and perseverance and faithfulness? My determination is that he will with me and my family and our church. I want to thank you all for listening today. Uh, so appreciate you tuning into this conversation. It has been rich. I could talk about this stuff with the one and only David Campbell all day long. And the good news is that we have many more conversations to look forward to. David, I honor you, so respect you, and just thank you for your wisdom, everything you pour out into our listeners each and every week. Before you go, everybody, just one quick reminder. If you are a church leader, take out your phone, Text the word GOOD to 39383 and check out how Dwell Bible can help your church engage with God's Word. Or if you're not a church leader but you're a listener to this, look it up in the App Store, Dwell Bible, and give it a go listening to Scripture. We love you. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.